Hi, and welcome to the third episode of the SAC podcast. I'm your host, Claire Moken, and today I'm welcoming to the show the Chief Purpose Officer and Chairwoman of the Board at Donato's Pizza, Jane Grodiable. Today, we will hear the story of how her dad created the company back when he was a student at Ohio State, and Jane will share some of her own experiences with Donato's, which she's been involved with since she was growing up. Hi, Jane, and thank you so much again for joining me today on the podcast. Um, so kind of just to get us started, if you could just talk a little bit about yourself and like a personal background, general introduction, um, kind of introduce yourself to the listeners, and then we'll get more into specifics in a little bit. Absolutely. So my name is Jane Grody-Able, and I'm second generation for our family business, Donato's Pizza. And we just celebrated 60 years. Um, what I'm proud about that is um, my dad has another business that's actually been in business for 50 years. And if you follow family businesses, uh, very few family businesses make it to the second generation. And even fewer, like 12% make it to the third generation. So we now have our third generation on board. I grew up behind our first restaurant. So I grew up in mostly operations. Um, and then when I graduated from the Ohio State University in organizational design and communication, I uh, then held, uh, started our training department and our people department and spent most of my career as our chief people officer. And then when we bought it back from McDonald's, which we can go into all that, um, then became our president and COO. Wow, that's awesome. That's so cool. What's the other company that your dad started 50 years ago? I'm curious. So my dad, he went to Ohio State until he was a sophomore. Um, he had started working in the pizza business when he was 14 years old, 13 years old, actually. It was before the labor laws. <laughs> and um, he used to just wipe pans and make pizzas. And what he saw was on the nights where the gentleman did it very consistently and did the same product every single time, those nights got busier. And on the nights where, you know, the, the gentleman would take pepperonis off or just do things differently to the pizza and it wasn't consistent, those were slower nights. And so there's a long, you know, a lot of story that goes behind why he went into business, but he dropped out when he was a sophomore at Ohio State um, and started Donato's. And he bought the name Donato's because it means to give a good thing. Um, instead of Grody Pizza, which we're all thankful for. <laughs> so leading into what is other businesses as consistency is really important part of what we do. We want to make sure that it's kind of like a contract with our customers, that they get the same pizza every single time. And so for us to do that, what he found was he used to slice all the pepperoni with a paring knife. And if you can imagine 100 pieces of pepperoni on every single pizza if some were thick and some were thin it would look different every time because we weigh all of our toppings and so he went to work on a piece of equipment called the Peppermatic. it's funny when i went to ohio state it was when i took a public relations course and and a communication course and one of the very first things i did was a whole presentation on the grody company so it's called the grody company it's a manufacturing company but his idea was to put the pepperoni sticks on the top and slice it over a band blade and the pepperonis would fall on the pizza on a conveyor mm -hmm. and he would drag it into the restaurant and springs would pop out and the band blades would break and so he'd drag it back out and it was too big for our restaurants at the time which i'll tell you where we're at today we're doing it again but at a smaller version and so um, my grandpa who worked in a grocery the the um, deli manager suggested that my dad take that piece of equipment Peppermatic out to the frozen pizza companies because in the early 70s they were all still slicing by hand and applying by hand 
so very disruptive in the early 70s with mm -hmm. automation. And so he was able to get it automated with my uncle, who was an engineer, um, and then started selling um, that Puppmatic, but now 23 patents later, lots of different equipment. So they're in food processing plants all over the country. Actually, they're an international company. And my cousin runs that company and he now has his his kids in the business. So that's another third generation business that's been in business for 50 years, but truly all out of the passion of making sure that our product was the same every single time. Um, and they do all kinds of things. They do baby carrots and they peel potatoes and they, um, they do slice and apply. So a lot of like the Starbucks sandwiches that you get, it's all off of equipment like that, that gets sliced and applied. Um, and so, and, and again, they're international, they have offices in Germany and I think Bangladesh. So, but all really, I love that story so much because it's all truly out of the goal of making our product the same every single time. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Wow. That's really cool. That's incredible that your family owns that company as well. That's awesome. Um, kind of transitioning from backstory. Can you tell me a little bit about your time at OSU as a student, I know you briefly mentioned your major, but just like when you were working at Donato's and if you were involved in anything else on campus and just kind of general overview of your experience at Ohio State. Yes. So I chose Ohio State, um, one, just because it's such a great school. So the Ohio State University <laughs> um, is it is a great university and I'm really proud to be an alumni of that. Um, I started um, going into organizational design and communication, like I said, not really sure what I wanted to do, but I knew I wanted to be part of the family business. So my activities on campus, you know, other than the, the football games, which are a big part of my life, um, truly I was working. So I didn't get to go to a lot of games. I worked at our campus location. We, we used that location as really part of our training. Uh, so it was a training store. And then I also worked up the street on High Street in our Worthington location. So I was a manager for our restaurants during um, my college years at Ohio State. So most of my activity on Ohio State was really working at our restaurant and uh, trying to attend the, the football games, but I was usually working during them. That's really awesome. Um, I know you kind of briefly mentioned this as well, but I'd love to hear a little bit more about like your dad's experience of starting Donato's when he was a sophomore and kind of how he decided to do that and just kind of that general process and storyline a little bit, if you could share that. Okay, absolutely. So uh, um, back up, I said he started when he was 13. When he was 16, he actually had the opportunity to buy his first pizza business. So he was still in high school Wow. and uh, the gentleman wanted to sell it to him. And my dad was super excited about it. And mostly because he, you know, whether it was pizza business, he was also a plumber on the side because my grandpa had a plumbing business. Mm -hmm. um, he just really wanted to be in business where he could bring his principals to work with him and he could treat others the way he wanted to be treated. And fortunately for us, it happened to be the pizza business that he had the passion for because plumbing business, although necessary, isn't quite as fun as making a pizza. Mm -hmm. So um, my grandpa, though, when my dad went home, he was uh, a junior in high school. Um, my grandpa was just like, you're not going to drop, you know, you're not going to do that. You're going to stay in school. You're going to go to college. My dad is one of five kids. He just, you're going to be the first one to go to college. And it's important to get your college degree and make sure that, you know, you're on that career path. So my dad passed on his first opportunity to buy the business. And so by that he was still working because um, he had to pay for his own schooling. So he was still working in the pizza business at the time. 
And then when uh, opportunity came to buy it for $1,300, um, that's when he decided to unfortunately drop out of college, but it ended up working out okay for him and make the decision to go into business for himself at that time. And so he borrowed uh, $1,300 from his dad and then his future father-in-law. And he's very proud of the fact that he paid back that $1,300 within six months. So that was very important to him that he was able to be sustainable. Um, and then he opened up his first shop actually on Thurman Avenue on the south side of Columbus. So it's like maybe four miles south of Ohio State University is our very first location. And that's wow, awesome. the reason my dad wanted to do that, like I said, was because he wanted to be able to bring his principals to work with him, um, making sure that, you know, people felt like they could bring their authentic self to work, making sure that we were treating others the way they wanted to be treated, making sure we were giving back to the neighborhoods, making sure that he was living his values, and importantly, making sure that that product was consistent every single time. And so that's why he dropped out. He went to his very first location, um, which actually he opened in front of my grandpa's plumbing shop. <laughs> and um, he used to sit out on the windowsill every night and just visualize this black brick freestanding building that he was going to move into. And so he opened up from, I think he didn't have lunch at the time. So just every day was at four o'clock until midnight. And then he would close the restaurant, sit out on the window stoop and visualize this building. So a few years later, 1967, he ended up um, really building that freestanding building. And I tell that story because of the importance of it is he visualized this black brick building and he would sit out every night, you know, the power of positive thinking and just see customers in his mind, like coming in and being happy and the associates being happy. Um, and then he ended up building that building, but he visualized it with black brick. So it was so important to him to have black brick. He would, he would always tell us he had to go all the way to London mm -hmm. to get the black brick and you know, little kids were like, oh my gosh, but it was London, Ohio, which is still very far away. Um, so he built the building and he didn't build it with a dining room, which still to this day, it doesn't have a dining room. And so when customers would come in, this is where I come in, but customers would come in to get their pizzas. And every night dad would say, oh, your pizza's not ready. Go back and see Nancy and the kids. And so my mom opened up our, our home every single day and our customers would come in and hang out with us. And mm -hmm. they would wait for their pizza. It was called back at Brody's. And dad would call back and say their pizza's ready. And a lot of times the customers would just stay and hang out and have their meals and their families. And so our home, the way I grew up, was really a dining room for our restaurant. And that's where we, I think, really learned hospitality and mm -hmm. how to invite people into your home and, um, and become family. So a lot of our customers to this day um, and a lot of our associates who have been with us for 50 years, who have just recently retired, um, really felt that connection of really community um, because pizza is bigger than, it is just bigger than the pizza we always say. It's about the community that you're doing business in. That's so cool. So your childhood home was, you said, right behind the restaurant? Okay. Yeah. That's really cool. Wow. That's so special. Um, what kind of transitioning more to recent, current, um, timeline, what do you like, can you describe your current position a little bit um, and how you transition throughout the company in various roles and kind of what you do now? Absolutely. So like I said, I grew up mostly in operations. I'm an operator by heart, mostly because I like being with our people in the restaurants, but also just the way that a restaurant runs. You need all skill sets, right? So you need marketing, you need human resources, you need training, 
you need finance, you need a little bit of psychology because <laughs> you're working with a lot of kids. Um, and that I, I really, I did love that. I love the operation side of the business, but when I graduated from Ohio state, um, recognizing that what was then called personnel and then became human resources, um, that we really needed something to represent our people and have a voice at the table for our people. So I started our people department in 1992, um, and became our chief people officer at that point. So I had training, um, HR, um, and payroll and benefits and all the things that happen in the human resource world. And uh, then we were growing, we were franchising. And at that time, uh, McDonald's in 1999, which sounds like so long ago now, um, uh, were really looking for a consistent player to be part of their menu strategy. So they invested in Chipotle, they invested in Boston Market for the chicken, and then they were looking for a pizza company. And they had searched the world, narrowed it down to like 60 different concepts. And what they liked about us was that we were consistent. Now back up just a minute. We were never looking to sell. So we weren't that. And there's a lot of companies and that's all the right things to do that will start and look for their exit strategy. Um, and we were not looking for an exit strategy, but we were looking to grow. And so um, they offered to buy us, um, flew us to Chicago, my brother, my dad and I, my dad was our CEO, my brother was our COO and I was our chief people officer at the time. And so as a family, we decided the best thing for our people would be able to grow the business and be able to also take our, our principles um, around the world. And so we did, and uh, I can talk more about that, but it was, shoot, it was about four years later, um, then I heard on NPR that they were selling or closing all the Donatos. So my dad and I ended up buying it back. When we bought the company back, I became our COO and president um, at that time. And then Throughout the years after that, we had continued growth mostly through franchise um, as I was overseeing our franchise department also. And um, then I guess you get to that point when you say, where do, what are your strengths and where do you soar with your strengths? And for me, um, I really wanted to get more involved in the community and I'll talk a little bit about what that meant for us, but it was we were always in the business to be able to give back since I was a little girl. And so um, in 2014 is when uh, uh, my very good friend, Tani Crane from Crane Plastics, who's also um, a grad in, with a grad school at Ohio State University, um, and I co-founded a nonprofit. It's on the south side of Columbus, and it's called Reeb Avenue Center. And basically, we took an old elementary school building. We uh, raised $14.5 million to renovate it. And inside of that building, we have 10 nonprofits and every single nonprofit that's in that building is dedicated to helping our neighbors either find a job or get education. And so I did that for a few years. That was around the same time I ended up doing um, Undercover Boss. I don't know if you had a chance to, to watch that, um, but Ohio State is a, a premier um, focus of that Undercover Boss. And so I had a delivery driver. If you haven't seen it, for those of you who haven't seen it, it definitely features Ohio State campus well. Um, and interesting. And so I did that. I wrote a book during that time. And uh, since that time, I've been operating as our chief purpose officer and a chair of our board. Um, my husband's our CEO currently. And so um, I, what I wanted to make sure we did was really represent our brand, not just in our restaurants and our communities, but how we give back. And so um, after Undercover Boss, we started our Promise Family Fund. So all of our associates can contribute their own money into a fund. 
and the company will match it. And then if we have associates that fall on hard times or they can't make their rent or they need their car repaired, um, they can fill out a grant uh, from the Promise Family Fund in order to help them. We've had associates that their house caught on fire and we refurnished their whole home. So all, all of that came out of Undercover Boss, honestly. And then I started our foundation a couple of years ago um, and it is called uh, the Donato's Family Fund Love Our Neighbor. And we focus on three things. We focus on affordable housing. We focus on um, food and food insecurity, so hunger. And we focus on health, mostly really leaning in on mental health um, throughout the year. So every year we raise about half a million dollars um, for those three pillars in our community and able to really lift our community up and making sure that we're giving back in a bigger way. Wow, that's incredible. I um, would love to hear a little bit more about all of those things, but with the Donato's, like the McDonald's buying Donato's that you briefly touched on, um, I know that you kind of noticed they were like selling your stores and you decided to buy them back. Were there other factors that went into the decision to like repurchase Donato's or was it more about um, kind of the executive decisions that McDonald's was making. I'd love to hear a little bit more about that side of it as well. That is a great question. So I would say what happened was McDonald's stock had a historic low in 2003. And so the street being a public company started giving them pressure that they were focused on the wrong things. And during our time with McDonald's, we started opening up really big buildings and changing our model from being mostly pickup and delivery to being in dining. Um, so the investment, our sales to investment ratio wasn't working anymore. And so when their stock hit a historic low is when they decided to get out of all the other brands and get focused back on McDonald's. Great people, we learned a lot. We learned a lot about real estate. We learned a lot about people. We learned a lot about just business overall and um, drive-throughs. We learned a lot about drive-throughs. And so for us, when they were going to get out of all their brands, um, it was one of those things, I think, mostly, I believe we had a destiny Mm -hmm. um, and what we believe is uh, the way of doing business. And so we had about 5,000 people working for us at the time, and I just knew we had a destiny. So my brother and sister um, and my mom, everybody had left the business. Um, So it was my dad and I still in the business. And so I was just like, dad, like, let's buy this back. I don't know how to buy back our family business from the world's largest restaurant company, but I will do everything I can. I will get smarter people around the table. I will make sure that um, really we at least put our best foot forward in order to buy it back because we had 5,000 people counting on us. And so I was like, I need you because you're super smart and you're awesome and you're a visionary, but I also need your money because I did not have enough money to buy the company back. And if you follow the story, in 1999, we sold high. It was a, it was a great year to sell, um, a very profitable year for us. And so we had a great multiple on our EBITDA. And then when we bought the company back, the company was losing $7.5 million. So that's usually when people are like, why would you buy back a company that was losing $7.5 million? Um, and I think we we knew and we believed in our people and we believed that if we could get the company back, and we could start focusing on the right things again, um, that we would be able to turn it around. So that first year we had a $10.5 million turnaround, got us back in the black again, and then we started growing again. And you know, so often people and companies talk about their culture and what their culture is. And to me, that was just a really great example for us on 
you know, what does it take to turn a company around like that? And it truly was our people. And our people really started caring about what they were doing again. Um, they cared about the customers again. They cared about each other again. And that's what truly turned the company around. We didn't change in our products again. Although it was funny during that time because people were like, oh my gosh, the pizza tastes so much better now. And I think it's because our people started making their pizza with love again and serving it with love again. And that's our promise is to serve the best pizza and make someone's day better. So that during that time with McDonald's, although hard, and I talk about it in my book, The Missing Pieces, I lost my soul a lot during that time. And so, you know, especially for young college students starting into your career and you always, everybody always says, you know, do something you love and you'll never have to work a day in your life. And the reality is, is making sure you're with a company that is in alignment with your values and who you are. You feel like you can go to work every day and be yourself and be authentically you and your values line up with your business. Um, during those four years with McDonald's for me, I totally lost myself. I lost my soul. Um, and it wasn't because McDonald's was doing anything bad. It was just a public company. And so we started focusing on short-term results instead of the long-term results. And I started working in fear. And some oftentimes when you're working in fear, you're working harder, you lose focus, you lose your courage to have a voice. You lose really a little bit of who you are. And that's ha that happened to me. And I just knew I never wanted to, when we bought the company back, um, it's really important to me that people feel like they can be themselves here and that they can bring their principles to work here and that they don't feel like it's political or that you have to be someone that you're not when you pull up and you go into work that day, that you can just truly be yourself. And so that leads us into something my dad has coined, um, and we bought the domain for, but agape capitalism. And that's how we believe in doing all of our businesses. So the Gordy Manufacturing Company, he has a couple other startups that he's done. He's a, he actually heads up our innovation center to this day. So now um, it is called Agape Automation. So Agape Capitalism is Agape being the truest, highest form of unconditional love. And taking that and being able to make money, capitalism can be get such a bad rap, but it's really important to be able to make money so you can get back and you can pay your people more, and you can give back in the community. And so agape capitalism for us is simple as doing business based on the power of love. And we have three tenets with that. One is always lead with love, always treat others the way you want to be treated, and always make sure if you do those two things, you'll end up doing the right thing. So when things get difficult, and I think I talked about this in the magazine, but we pull, we have a coin, we pull the coin out, and we said, did we lead with love? Did we treat others the way we want to be treated? And are we doing the right thing? And that's helpful in the boardroom. It's helpful in everyday life when you're in the restaurants and you're serving your customers. It's helpful in your personal life. Am I, am I leading with love? And am I treating others the way I want to be treated? Just in my own relationships. And so um, it was, it's been pretty instrumental for us. For example, when uh, we hit the pandemic, and then all the businesses uh, were basically given the opportunity to apply for the PPP loan. And we were approved those first few weeks, like everybody, our sales were double digit down. I mean, it was crazy, just like the rest of the world, just like all the students trying to figure out how do you go to school during this time? My daughter was actually going to high state at the time. And, and for all of us, we were approved um, for that loan for an eight and a half million dollar loan. And then we started seeing sales go back up. 
and we had two weeks to decide whether or not to take the loan or not. And um, that next week, our sales went up double digits. And so we called an emergency board meeting and we went through those three tenets of are we leading with love and are we treating others the way you want to be treated? Because those loans were really intended for the smaller mom and pops out there that aren't able to make that next payroll. And so we decided to do the right thing with to be turned down the eight and a half million dollars, um, which was a hard thing to do. But as an example of how we use agape capitalism in our everyday decision making. So we turned it down and actually ended up that year having our most profitable year ever. So um, it's just, I, I'd like to use that as an example of agape capitalism doing business based on the power of love can really truly get you to your dreams and your desires and goals and doing the right thing in a bigger way. Wow, that's it. mentioning your daughter kind of reminded me. I'd love to hear about like the current family that's involved in the company and kind of like how that works in terms of, all working together and who's still involved and who's kind of stepping in in that third generation and all that. That's awesome. Thank you for asking that. So um, my role, my dad's role with us was, you know, you can work anywhere you want. You can go work somewhere else, but if you want to, there's a place here for you. So my brothers and sisters and I all found our place here at Donato's. And what was good about that is it was truly a family business. But what was hard about that is, Sometimes you don't know in a family business if you're doing it because you want to make your dad proud or you feel like you have to, or there's this umbilical cord of, you know, making sure that you carry on the legacy. So when my family all left during McDonald's and it was just my dad and I buying it back, um, I'm part of an organization called Young Presidents Organization. And there are a lot of family businesses in there. And so one of the biggest um, recommendations was make, have your kids go work somewhere else first. Um, before they join the family business and only join the family business if you want to. And so that's been my rule with my three kids. I'm married and my husband has three boys also. Um, I have an older son. He's now 35. Um, he, after graduating from um, Mount Vernon University, actually went on and owned and operates his own snap fitness gym. So he has five of those. He did that for 10 years and then came on board. And now he is our vice president of franchise operations because um, he truly understands franchise from the other side of the PL. And he's married and they have three kids, my three grandkids, um, Roman, Augie, and Luca. And they have another one on the way, which is so fun. And then my daughter, Brianna, went to Ohio University. Um, and then she graduated and went to work with Cameron Mitchell Restaurants in their people department. And then she joined us a year and a half ago. Um, is in our people department as a manager of people culture experiences. My youngest daughter is in grad school. She graduated from the Ohio State University and she's in grad school now for behavioral health and therapy. And so moving on the, the, um, the psychology track um, and then she is getting ready to graduate in May from that. And so how, what is it like working with your family and business? I always say it can be magical and it can be really messy. And so one of the things that we do is use a tool called Dice. I use it with my dad every week. Like my dad's not day-to-day -day involved with the business, but every week we meet and we talk about the business at a macro level, um, not a micro level. And really being able to say, who's the decision maker? So it's called Dice. Who needs input? Who needs to be consulted with? And who get who's executing it? And so really important tool to use um, actually, we had brought in an industrial psychologist with family businesses to do that. 
And that's the reason is because you have to really understand your roles and then who ultimately has that decision. Um, and my dad is the majority owner and I'm, I'm the second highest owner. And so carrying that uh, that legacy on and then starting, which we will be starting a family office business. Um, but our shareholders basically make the decisions in the business. And then using that tool has been really helpful for us. That's awesome. My dad's also not currently, but he was part of Young President's organization. Um, so he was involved, yeah, in all of that as well. So that's what, did, a, what did your dad do? Um, he is obviously an entrepreneur, small business owner, um, and he currently owns liquor stores. And then he's actually working on a new startup right now um, that does a similar thing to YPO, but he's making it an app that basically allows people to um, kind of create that form experience on their own through a subscription Um and so he's working on that right now. That's a great idea. That's a yeah. really great idea. Yeah. Very so cool. that's a cool connection. Um, I think that's so cool. I think family businesses and seeing how much yours has grown is like truly incredible and so inspiring. Um, I would also love to hear a little bit more about like the Promise Family Fund that you briefly mentioned and kind of like your foundations as well as the um, Reeb Avenue Center. Um, if you could just kind of talk a little bit about how you started those and how they're kind of still in operation and how they work today. Absolutely. So our Promise Family Fund, as I said, started after our undercover boss experience. And I realized as I was in the restaurants, and I think I always knew this because I grew up in the restaurants, but, you know, it's our own people every day that need help. And so um, being able to start that where our associates also, you know, people in the home office or people in the stores want to be able to contribute to it so that, that we can help our own associates. That started in 2014. We've always given back to the community in a big way. Um, but in 2014 also, the mayor at the time, Mayor Michael Coleman called my dad and just said, you know, the neighborhood that you started in, even though our store's doing really well there, has really fell in really hard times. And so uh, that's when I called my friend, Tani Crane, and uh, together with a, a village of people, um, came up with a strategy for Reeve Avenue Center, which was an old elementary school building sitting it's on Reeve Avenue. Um, it's about a 120-year-old building and it had been sitting there vacant. Um, and one in this neighborhood, one in four houses were boarded up. 67% of the household incomes were below, 200% below poverty levels, 22.5% unemployment. Um, Kids between the ages of 16 and 24 were not working, they were not in school, and they didn't have their high school diploma. So we just found really deplorable um, situation on the south side. So one of the things we did, if anyone's interested in the whole charitable um, philanthropic area, there's a book called Toxic Charity. And it's all about how good people come into neighborhoods or into countries and say, oh, here's what you need. And they build something and then the neighbors are like, that's not really what we needed. <laughs> and so we, uh, after reading that book, we decided to survey our neighbors and ask them what they needed. So they came back with five things. And if you overlay them with the Maslow hierarchy of needs, then it's pretty similar. So they needed access to um, a health clinic because there wasn't, there wasn't one in the neighborhood. They needed access to affordable housing. They needed access to safety. Um, because at the same time, this neighborhood um, was the highest drug crime, highest human trafficking, highest gang, highest violence area. And um, they really wanted to make sure that they had safety. 
and then they needed education and jobs. And so the city went to work on the safety and the city built a health clinic for the neighbors. So it's a free health clinic to the whole neighborhood. And then my dad and a lot, uh, Don Kelly and a lot, lot of other um, developers in the area, along with Reverend John Edgar, started a fund for renovating homes. And so they renovated uh, over 200 homes in the neighborhood to keep them affordable housing for our neighbors because a lot of the economic divide for really, you know, and, and unfortunately it affects mostly our minority population and our black and brown population is there's no transfer of wealth because people didn't own their homes. And so there wasn't an opportunity to transfer that wealth. So it's called the Renaissance Fund and there's a whole fund dedicated just to help people become homeowners. But the mm -hmm. last two were education and jobs. And so that's when Tani and I, um, with this, the, the city owns the school building. Um, you know, and I talk about all that stuff that was going on in the neighborhood and this building sat there vacant. There wasn't one broken window. There was copper on the roof. Nothing was stolen. There were no squanders inside the building. And there's a lot of hom homeless around in that population. And so it was, we believe the neighborhood was just holding it in hope and reverence of something happening and having hope that something would happen. And so um, after we raised the $14.5 million to renovate the building, our goal was to stay focused on helping people get a job and get education. So um, we have a learning center that serves infants through five-year-olds and it's NACI accredited and Head Start. So it's free to our community and it's a state-of-the-art learning center for these kids that they graduate from and are kindergarten ready. And then we have a boys and girls club that takes up our whole, so there's about 118 kids in the learning center. And then we have over a hundred kids up in the boys and girls club. And that's an after school program. So at three o'clock we're open to the students coming in, um, but also a summer program and summer camp for them. They do a lot of things with Ohio State. We do a lot of things with Buckeye Cares um, mm -hmm. and a lot of things with the athletes from Ohio State who come and volunteer um, at the Reeve Avenue Center. But these kids have an opportunity to have a safe place where they can come and play, but also get a healthy meal. We have a cafe on site as well. Um, and then just really being a place where they can learn. Um, they do character building classes, they do educational classes, they do financial literacy, uh, and it's a safe place for the kids, but also the parents to know their kids are there. Mm -hmm. And then we have a whole adult learning center. So we have Goodwill Industries is there and they teach a STNA course, which is a state training certified nurses aid. Um, which is a living wage job. And um, it's an awesome course. It's uh, unfortunately, there's a wait list all through 2024. Mm -hmm. We just last year graduated 250 men and women from that uh, course that now work at Nationwide Children's Hospital and Grant Hospital. And they're from the neighborhood. So that's been successful. Uh, we have another Goodwill also does CDL license training. So mm -hmm. people can get into living wage that way. We work with Alvis, and Alvis is an organization that works with men and women that are transitioning out of the correctional institution into society. So um, it's all about recidivization. So we serve over 3,000 people in that um, in Reeve Avenue. And really, it's about how to tie a tie. It's about putting your resume together. At the end of the week, you get to interview with employers and how do you talk about your past and um, we've been a company, we've always believed in second chances and um, really making sure that we're bringing people back into the workforce. And so uh, Alvis does a wonderful job with men and women, and they do all their programming there. And we work with uh, Godwin Gill, 
Guild, they do a bridges program to help people into the healthcare. Um, it's called, it is called Career Bridges, but they come in, they don't have their GED, we help them get their GED. Then they go through a four week course with Ohio Health, and then they're placed in one in four jobs within the Ohio Health System, which are living wage jobs. Uh, we work with Columbus State on digital literacy um, and financial literacy. So oftentimes our neighbors don't have a computer and have never been taught how to use a computer. So it's really helping people build their resume, but build their lifestyle as well. Mm -hmm. um, and then we also have St. Stephen's, which is wraparound services. We have mental health help um, called Southeast. Um, they're there every single day. We have a social worker on site that helps navigate that individual that comes in the front door through the, the different programs that are available. And we have a cafe that's run by Middle Ohio Food Bank. And um, it is a sit-down restaurant, and so you can come in. It's for free for our neighbors, and um, they get healthy food. So it's all about giving them access to healthy foods like salads and quinoa and uh, protein shakes and kale smoothies and things that they don't necessarily have the opportunity to eat every single day. Um, and we also have, what else do we have there? St. Stephen's, which I said was wraparound services. So it's really about helping that adult what they need so that they can um, take their next step in their journey and being able to have a safe place. That's incredible. Who like runs the general Reeb Avenue Center currently, or does it kind of like self-operate now? Because obviously there's a lot of different facets and I'm curious how that kind of continues to run Thank so you successfully. Yeah. Originally we only had, we hired a property manager and security. Um, because we're still in that neighborhood, right? And we still have to make it sure it's safe for all the kids and all mm -hmm. the adults that are in there. And uh, so Tana and I would visit all, every day. Um, and then two years into it, we recognized that the property manager actually happened to have her social work degree. And um, oftentimes we would find her down in the cafe, talking to our neighbors, seeing what they needed. And so uh, we recognized she had a lot of talent. Her name is Allie Zoller. Uh, and she actually is now the CEO of Reeb. Wow. We have a social worker that works there. We have a program director that works there. Um, actually, we have a lot of Ohio State interns that um, uh, that come in and uh, under the social work uh, degree and work with us there. And uh, we have a cleaning crew. So we also have kind of a social enterprise where we hire people from the neighborhood and they do our janitorial. So um, their budget Every year is about $1.5 million. We raised a $6 million endowment so that we could use the proceeds from that to fill in that gap um, so that we can continue to provide those services. And another thing that we do there is called Love Kindness. Um, and we have Love Kindness cards a lot of, of uh, down in the short north or around our high state campus. You see people that are holding hands or holding signs and uh, basically saying that they need help, right? And so people call them panhandlers, but they're really, they're people who have fallen on hard times. And so our love kindness card inside has uh, access for a free meal, a free um, care kit and a free bus pass. So it can take the person from where they are down to Reeb Avenue and then take them back. So it's an all day long bus pass with the hopes of coming to Reeb Avenue, we'll give you a free meal, we'll give you a care kit. And it could be anything from toothpaste to toothbrush to the basic needs, socks, um, to, and sometimes shoes, right? Um, and then hopefully navigate them throughout the building to get them the services that they need so then they can go back and we can start them on a journey to really their next uh, chapter in life. 
That's incredible. That is really cool. Um, I'm kind of, this is kind of getting towards the end, but I would just love to hear like one thing you would potentially do differently in your either experience at Ohio State or like beginning of your career. Um, and then kind of like one thing, if you could recommend to anyone, anywhere, anytime, like what is one thing that you would highly recommend? Thank you. Um, I would say what I would have done differently at Ohio State, that's interesting. I would have learned how to be a better college student. Uh, I think I was working and I had to pay for my own apartment and my own uh, books and all the fun things that go along with that. And although that was good, it I didn't involve myself in a lot of the leadership and a lot of the other, uh, even authority. And I just think that's such an important part of college life is getting involved and being more involved on campus and student life. Um, I would have done that differently. Um, as far as leadership wise, what I would have done differently when we bought the company back, I guess as a leader, sometimes in your gut, you know the right thing to do, but things around you can, um, whether it's uh, the data points or whatever else, or it's just ego, um, you can make decisions differently. And so when we bought the company back, we had some stores that were in markets that we weren't able to support as well as we needed to. And I was just determined to hang on to them. I was like, we're going to keep the lights on. We're going to keep these people employed. We're going to do everything we can. And I I held on to that too long, I think, and because I kind of knew um, that writing was on the wall, to say. But I think the most important thing that we did in doing that is when you do have to make a hard decision and sometimes you have to take a step back to take a step forward that you just do it the right way. So for us, it was treat others the way we want to be treated, lead with love and do the right thing. So although we had to close some of those stores, we did a career fair for all our managers. All our managers had a job by the end of the two weeks, we gave them notice. And then we also gave them a severance package. We gave all of our hourly associates a severance package, but also notice. And we also had a career fair for them. And I think in that way, it's like sometimes you have to take a step back to take a step forward, but just making sure that you do it the right way and not the easy way. Easy way is just like close the door and say, sorry, we're not going to be here anymore. And so that's a really important part of it. Um, and just follow the the three things of agape capitalism is treat others the way you want to be treated, lead with love and do the right thing. Yeah, that's incredible. Um, and then the one thing that you would like highly recommend and would, is that just the agape capitalism kind of, or is there more specific? Yeah, answer? I'll use my undercover boss example if we have if we have a minute to do that. So yeah, I would love to hear about that too. So it was a crazy experience. <laughs> I wasn't raising my hand. This isn't something we called and said, "Hey, we want to do this." They reached out because there's not a lot of females in the pizza business, okay. and they were looking for a story on pizza. And so um, we went through all these interviews. And if you watch Undercover Boss at all, you always like these people know they're on camera like like this has like they have to know right and they do but the way that undercover boss does it I think I'm allowed to talk about this they um set it up as a ruse so our associates knew they were on camera but they thought it was a documentary about restaurant concepts at first and then when all the crew showed up it called they called it the startup so all our associates thought that I was my name was Kathy that I was trying to get my own startup business and I had a vegan sub shop and there was another actor in the store and he was going to set up a, a wings, a wing shop. And then there was a hostess. So it was kind of like shark tank. Mm. And she would be like 
asking the associates, who do you think would be a better boss? Who do you think has a better concept? Which is how your pupils start to talk. And although they're only filming me with the associate, all that's going on in the store. Mm -hmm. So people don't know, but you'll appreciate the campus store. My manager recognized me. And so that got a whole nother play. Um, but I think, so at the end of the night, I'll just give the spoiler alert. Um, I was out with our delivery driver on campus delivering pizzas with him. And he decided to tell me on national TV, on the camera, that when he delivers pizzas, he would stop and um, get high and smoke a joint with our customers. Now, granted, this was 2014 and Ohio just passed a whole different law. Right, yes. Um, but it wasn't legal then. And, and you really shouldn't drink or smoke with your customers anyway. And so that was kind of the, that, that was the um, trigger night. For, and especially for undercover boss, it's still one of their highest rated ones. So Ohio State gets some play there um, just because of this delivery driver. And so, but at the end of the night, I called my dad and I wasn't allowed to call anybody, but I snuck and called my dad at like three in the morning. And I was just like, this just happened. This could potentially ruin our family business. This is going to be on national TV. And the one thing he said to me, which so many times he has said to me is, did, did you love your way through it? And I think that's the best advice I'd ever gotten in my whole life, personal and professional. It's like, if we can sometimes take our emotion out of it and just pause and ask ourselves if we are loving our way through it, um, that, that for me was a really pivotal point and just really understanding in tough times, as long as you treat others the way you want to be treated and you love your way through it, that it's possible to do that. And so um, the other piece for me, I was, I, for me personally, um, and I write, I do write about it in the book is just don't lose your voice. And I talked about the four C's is making sure you know what your character is and you surround yourself with people who are like-minded that are going to lift you up, not pull you down. And during the McDonald's days, I found myself kind of, um, kind of not really knowing what solid ground was and that character is really really important but it's also really important who you surround yourself with and the other one is courage and I talk about courage to make mistakes courage to um, take risks do things you've never done before I never bought the company back before but having the courage to do that but most importantly is having the courage to keep your voice oftentimes you can be in a situation or in a room and you're thinking oh that's a dumb question um and there's no such thing as some questions and there's no such thing of thinking that you can't accomplish what you want to accomplish. So always have the courage to take the risk to make mistakes and have the courage to live your values out loud. Um, otherwise, you have values and you're not living them out loud. You're not really influencing the outcome. Uh, the other last two C's and my four C's are uh, really conviction, making sure you love what you do. Um, and that you wake up excited about it every day, even when it's hard days, that you just have that conviction that I'm, this is what I want to do. This is where I want to be. And this is how I want to get there. Um, and the very final one is compassion, that you do all those things, but you do it with compassion and empathy and making sure that you're really um, treating others the way you want to be treated, as I keep saying, but that you just do it with compassion. I always say, like, we can hire people and we can have people become alumni from our company. But I always say, even if they stole from us, that they should be treated with respect and dignity. And that's the most important thing that you can do. It's easier just to, to toe the line than it is to have some hard conversations, but to do it with compassion. Mm -hmm. Wow, that was amazing. Thank you so much. That's kind of 
the end of my questions. If you have any questions, I would love to answer or like anything else you want to talk about with our last couple of minutes. Um, I do because you, what did you say? You're a sophomore? Yeah. You're, you're not going to school during the pandemic, right? Correct. Um, And so what are you, what do you enjoy most about your student life at Ohio State? Oh, that's such a good question. I, um, I love OSU because there's literally endless options of like ways to get involved and things to do and people to meet. Um, and obviously being from out of state, I didn't know anyone coming to OSU. Um, and I kind of just like got involved right away to try to meet as many people as possible. Um, I think SAC is definitely the highlight of my like involvements on campus. It's such an incredible group of people, um, kind of from all over different majors, different interests, different hobbies, but we all are united under like our love for OSU and our desire to connect with current students and alumni, which I also value because I, when I was looking at schools, I knew I wanted to go somewhere that had a strong alumni base that I could kind of connect with as a student, but then also know that after I graduated, I would still remain connected. That was really important to me as well. So finding SAC was definitely like everything I was looking for at Ohio State kind of encapsulated within one organization. Um, So I'd say SAC is probably my favorite involvement. And then obviously like football games and school spirit and all of the other amazing, amazing things that come with being a student at the Ohio State University. So that's awesome. And it will be a great example of that. So we're getting ready to open up a location in Naples in Florida. And I think they have one of the biggest alumni groups there. Um, and then my dad and my son and I were just at our Oklahoma, Edmond, Oklahoma location that just opened up. And we had probably 50 black guys come in um, just to just to say hi and meet and talk. But all over the country, every time we open up a restaurant, so many Ohio State alumni Buckeyes come in and they are strong like and it's funny they they age range from Oklahoma in that alumni group they age ranged from like 75 to 25 right and so um, I think it's such a great way to stay connected but awesome network and using that as a network is really important yeah so it's incredible I love it it's going way too fast but <laughs> it's good I still have a lot of time so Yes, and enjoy it. Enjoy it while you can. It does go fast. Yeah. Thank you again so much. This was such an incredible conversation. I'm really excited to share this with everyone else. So thank you. I appreciate it. And good luck to you. And congratulations on all that you've done. Thank you so much. Have a great rest of your day. Okay, you too. Thanks. Bye bye. SAC Podcast signing off.